This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson, and thank you for joining us for episode 10 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Today, we're joined with two firefighters from Maelstrom Air Force Base Fire Department in Great Falls, Montana. They're among the first ever firefighter graduates of the Air Force Tactical Response Orientation Course. The course indoctrinates students into the tactics and procedures necessary to be a part of a tactical response force. Our guests will share their experiences from the course and will also share how Air Force Fire Departments could prepare their rescue task forces or RTFs. So without further ado, please welcome Senior Airman Dallin Wilson and Senior Airman Adam Van Lang. What's up, guys? Hey, what's up, Matt? How's it going? Nothing. I appreciate you guys coming on. Um, pretty excited to talk about this rescue task force. Now, I know a lot of people don't know too much about it, and so I'm hoping Maelstrom can provide some insight for us. So before we get into the main topic, though, um, have each one of you introduce yourselves. So tell us how long you've been in, where you've been stationed, maybe where you've been deployed. Dallin, we can start with you first. All right. Well, my name's Dallin Wilson, senior airman. Been in about almost three years now. Uh, this is my first base. and Kind of came in the game a little late, but uh, that's all right with me, if you know what I mean. Yeah, cool. Adam? Adam Van Lang, senior airman, uh, originally from South Florida. Uh, this November will be four years. Uh, I haven't been stationed anywhere else, uh, first base. And yeah, no deployments as of yet. Cool. So not huge introduction from you guys, pretty young in the career field. That's all right, though. You guys participated in a, in a pretty awesome program up there in Montana. Uh, I want to start talking about that a little bit. First, I want to address some of the acronyms. So you guys participated in the Tactical Response Force Orientation Course. That's a mouthful. Yes. And Air Force firefighters are probably familiar with the Rescue Task Force. So Adam, can you explain maybe what the Tactical Response Force team is? I guess sure, sure. To the, yeah, Rescue Task Force. Well, how we differentiate from other rescue task forces is that we are currently at a nuke base. There's not too many of those around. And I think that's where people get confused. The mission here is slightly different because of the assets that we have. So essentially they're aerial SWAT. And I think that's where uh, there was some confusion. Uh, so it is tactical response force. Um, and again, there's, I think, Spaces, correct me if I'm wrong, that are have a nuclear capability, and those spaces are more geared to what we're currently doing. Yeah, pre- I mean, he pretty much described it there. The so TRF, right, Tactical Response Force. If you want to think of them as sort of a Air Force SWAT team, you could, but I, I think that their mission is a different enough that they sit in their own box. So, uh, in the event of a a takeover of maybe a nuclear asset or a launch facility, for example, they're the first one on the ground to try to uh, regain control of the asset or facility. Uh, and that is their, their primary uh, mission for that. And of course, as you can imagine, there's not a whole lot of uh, nuclear takeovers these days, although you do have to build that precaution. They also do some secondary things. Um, Respond to active shooters is a big one. Uh, uh, as you can imagine with terrorist acts these days, that's that happens a lot more frequently. And uh, here in Montana specifically, there's a, there's 
is a huge state. There's a lot of outdoor space for people to get lost in. They also assist with search and rescue missions throughout the state. Uh, but all three of those things being uh, their main bread and butter, the middle one, uh, active shooter response, kind of is where we are hoping to participate in for, for the most part. Uh, that's pretty much how we got into it was they, in the case of these responses, they need to have medical nearby and uh, having them able to work alongside is a bigger asset than just sitting on the sidelines waiting. So that's kind of, and between that and the uh, search and rescue, having a medical on the team out there in the woods, in the building, in the facility is, it's a much faster, much more appropriate response. It's just a way to get medical at the front line, so to speak. Yeah, that was a talking point I was going to bring up a little later. A question I had for you guys is, you know, why firefighters um, participate in the training? We can get into that a little bit later. But so I, I understand that you guys, and like we mentioned in the introduction, you guys participated in the tactical response force orientation course. It was 21 days from what I read. Correct. Yes. Yep. 21, 21 Monday through Fridays. So, Dallin, can you tell us what that was like? So why were you chosen? How'd you get picked for it? And tell us about <laughs> your experience at the course. All right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's plenty to talk about there. So, um, normally, uh, it's open to uh, security forces members. Now, they have their own particular selection process, which involves like interviews, an application, a physical exam. Uh, we kind of like bypassed that because we're hoping to get on with them as an augmentee status. So they gave the fire department like kind of the reins to pick who we thought was best fit, if you will. Uh, I just didn't have any CDCs going. I didn't have anything else going at the time. And so they're like, Hey, you're up. But, uh, uh, Van Lang and, uh, Sergeant Sweetman were the first through the course. And so they were bestowed the, I guess, option to choose who's next. They, they threw my name in the hat. And so that was how I got selected for it. And then, uh, it was kind of like, Hey, uh, what you doing tomorrow? By the way, you're going to orientation. Uh, you got a PT test in an hour. <laughs> I read about that. They couldn't give you a little bit more of a notice than maybe the well, day before. They gave us like a, it was like a warning courtesy notice, like, Hey, it's coming up. Uh, it, the reason for all of the, and I, I'm trying not to bash them at all. Right. They're awesome guys. They're dealing, they're doing awesome with what they have, but what they were given was, Hey, we got a whole bunch of TRF members, PCSing and, and you know, the hand, uh, leadership is going to change hands and a lot of things are happening. We need a lot more orientations to start this year than you're used to. They said they do what two. correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, uh, two or three orientations a year. I think I was like the sixth or the seventh for that year. So they're, they're way, uh, way beyond their normal capacity. And so what that meant for them was trying to grab as many candidates as they could and smash them together into a class and, and try to get the numbers up. And so that's why they didn't have, uh, hard deadlines for these uh, start dates and things like that. So it's pretty much like, hey, hey, fire department, have a guy ready. 
and when it's go time, it's go time. I had a pretty good idea I was going to be next, but uh, the date definitely kind of kind of side side swipe me there. Is it a Monday through Friday training? Yes, it is. Yes, yep. Monday through Friday, uh, pretty much start at what five o'clock in the morning. Correct. I uh, do. I don't know. It was almost two hours of PT, something like that. Hour and a half, two hours of PT, and then you go on like a little breakfast break. Come back about seven thirty, and just work until all the objectives done. Now, if your team is uh, struggling to come together and get things accomplished, your objectives can take you into way late into the night. Like I think the latest we came home was about eight o'clock at night, uh, just because we didn't fully accomplish everything and. It makes for a long day. So if we could talk about some of those objectives, what, what did they have you doing during the 21 day period? Uh, let's talk about Adam, Adam's uh, objectives. Cause uh, they had a much bigger team. And so they had, they had a lot more to do and, and talk about there. What do you think? So I want to go back a little bit to why we got such short notice uh, at the fire department. We were talking about this program. It was supposed to be coming up sometime within the year. And we weren't sure how or what it was going to look like if it was just with security forces. We actually uh, bumped heads with one of, their, one of their training officers while they were using our tower for repelling operations. Just, it just so happened to be. And we struck conversation with them. And I think that's how it came about working with them because they were also interested in partnering with us. And this was maybe two weeks prior to us finding out. So the way we find out, uh, me and Sergeant Sweetman was, it was uh, Thursday, uh, Thursday evening around six, 6.30, we received a phone call saying that, hey, uh, would you like to participate in this TRF orientation? I had no clue what it was. I just knew it had to do with cops. I didn't know how long it was gonna last, what we were gonna be doing, what it all entailed, uh, but we said yes. So ours was really out of the blue, short notice, just be there tomorrow morning, Friday morning. You'll be detached from the fire department for the next uh, 21 training days. And that's how it started for us. We had no clue what they did, what we had to do, all that stuff. So it was a a slap in the face. So like he said, um, PT is a big deal it's a it's a big thing uh essentially they try to wean out uh people who are not fit both uh physically and mentally and physical fitness has a big role to do with that it's it's pretty challenging especially uh coming from the fire department they run at a different pace they do different things um and it's very go 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 so you would think after being trained smoked or trained in the morning uh, for a bit that it would be a little bit easier throughout the day, but it isn't. Uh, throughout the day, it's very attention and detail oriented, uh, especially in the first you know week or so. They want everyone to be together. Um, you pay for it. You pay for it physically. Uh, any type of mess ups, any type of uh, non-unity that you may have. Uh, so it's pretty physically demanding and that's throughout the entire day. Now things have been changing a bit, but when we went through, they had something called tallies. So let's just say you're not echoing loud enough or 
you know, you guys are not lined up together or you're not fast enough. Everything's timed. Everything's timed. You accumulate tallies. Sometimes you pay for it right on the spot. They make you run sprints to whether it be the Hilo, what we have outside, a, a burn tower, uh, push-ups, burpees, anything you could think of. They have us do on the spot. But then at the end of the day, we also have to pay for it then as well. So like I said, it's pretty physically demanding and it could be mentally taxing as well when you keep on getting trained throughout the entire day for these little mess ups. It sounds like a pseudo special forces training course. They, they grabbed this program essentially from a, gr- a green, green berets. So there was an instance that happened years ago after nine 11. And that's how this program came to be when it came to, you know, uh, nuclear capabilities and terrorism they had an exercise a while back and they they identified that we need protection for the assets for the nuclear assets we need a special a special team that would be able to do special things to protect these assets not just security forces so there is some history on how it came about and how the training came about and um yes it is taken from special forces if, if i could you know say the least cool so i know we kind of jumped around on the subject a little bit but i think that was pretty good accurate start is that whole 9-11 thing pretty much after that they're like hey holy crap we're really vulnerable let's get let's enlist some help from the green berets and see what they can do yeah essentially from what i understood they actually had different uh entities come and try to break into a nuclear facility to see if it was possible, how long it would take. And a lot of that information is, wasn't disclosed to us, but that's how it came about having these different special forces groups, uh, the best that we have, see if they could, uh, get a hold of these high important assets. It sounds like an awesome experience. So are you guys sworn to secrecy with some of the objectives? Can you talk about the training that you do or? Uh, we, we can talk about uh, some of the things that we did, but uh, the the training itself is kind of this unspoken agreement. If you go through it, you can't spoil it potentially for anyone who else who might go through it. I can understand that. Can you brush the surface maybe? Oh yeah. I mean, we can get into some of the stuff, but uh, on the day, here's, here's maybe a typical day. Depends where you're at in it. Right. Um, uh, after PT, that's when uh, all the learning part starts. PT is literally they want to build you up to a certain capability by the end of the course. Then the day starts. This is the learning part, uh, maybe for an hour or, or an hour and a half, two hours, something like that. You're going to work on a task. Let's say that uh, that week you're really trying to do CQB, which is uh, close quarters combat. Uh, clearing rooms, moving through buildings and things like that in a tactical way so as to uh, avoid any any blind spots as you move through this building, right? Uh, so you and your team, you all get uh, rubber ducks, uh, you know, fake AR-15s or M4s, whatever. And then literally just, okay, everyone stand up, you know, hold the gun up. And it depends what, what part they're trying to reinforce uh, you'll just hit that head on and then any mistake is going to be either pay for it on the spot or you're going to get a tally. So 
here we are already tired from our two-hour PT sessions, which aren't a joke, by the way. It's not like you go to the gym and just dink around with some weights. Like, they pretty much wax you out. <laughs> and uh, so here we are all standing in a line, uh, and we're going we're gonna to move through this room. And so uh, if you are covering a certain section of the room and you even just, if you could see my eyes, if I'm covering this section, you even just look over that and the instructor catches you, right? You weren't covering it for that time. And uh, they really hit hard. Every little thing, uh, I mean, flagging someone with a gun, uh, moving a section of moving beyond a section of the room without clearing it, things like this, which are the tiny mistakes, which really matter, uh, in the event of an actual shooter, uh, would, would get somebody killed. They hit those super hard. They just pick you apart until you stop making those mistakes. Uh, so that, that might go on for an hour or two and then they'll, they'll debrief, right? Hey, this went really well. This went really bad. You guys need to work on this, this and that. And then, that little block of the day would be over. Now we move on to like the next objective. So they don't just hammer the same thing all day, every day. Uh, they'll hit objectives. Uh, maybe there's a few for the day. So CQB first, and then they're going to go talk about, um, I don't know, uh, repelling or something like that. So that two hour block is over. You paid for this on the spot and you got, say, 10 tallies. And uh, now we're going to move on to repelling. It's going to talk about knots and things like that. Uh, and same thing applies. The minute details are going to add up into tallies and, and different problems for you. So then by the end of the day, you've, got, you've hit all your objectives uh, and you've paid for your tallies, which can be uh, pretty rough. I heard that they've started going away from it somewhat but uh uh once all the objectives are met all the tallies are paid and everything is all cleaned up and ready then you can go home uh that's kind of a typical day uh it gets harder and they get they crack down more and more toward the end they uh and it just kind of makes you better little by little at what point do they integrate medical training into this do they integrate tactical combat casualty care or TCCC into this at all? I'll, I'll, I'll speak on that real quick because, again, for us, we were so new, both on their end and on our end. At first, they didn't know how to set us apart from the other security forces members going through it. So what they did is they considered us regular security force members going through just like everyone else. We didn't get any type of different treatment, any type of different talk until close to the end. When we started clearing buildings, they started throwing scenarios at us and we would carry the medical bag and so on and so forth. And they would set up specific scenarios for us uh, to implement our knowledge and what, and what we knew. But throughout most of the orientation, nothing was different for us. Uh, in regards to training or even talk, you know, there was one or two days where we went over some simple, basic uh, medical stuff that everyone could use. Uh, but besides that, no, no implementation of anything medical to, until towards the end in live training scenarios. Like, for instance, when we would do close quarter combat, 
in this big building, you know, the instructor would yell, hey, you're down, you got shot. What would you guys do? And they would set up a security around us. So um, that's the most that we got. And like Dylan was saying, we've been through three of these so far. And the more we go through it, the more is being implemented. We were just so brand new to, to it all on both ends that we, at least for my class, um, did some of that towards the end. But it was still productive. It was still good. And Adam, you were the first class, is that right? Uh, with firefighters in it. Correct. Correct. Me and Sergeant Sweetman. And so I'll give you the opportunity to defend yourself a little bit because I understand you came under a little scrutiny, not you specifically, but the article came under a lot of scrutiny on social media because it sure. said that it's the first ever combat ready firefighters. And uh, people didn't enjoy that too much. That might have been. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a misrepresentation on the part of the author, but that was an article from November 25th, 2019. Give you an opportunity to defend yourself, man. Sure. Absolutely. Which first off, I, I was a little upset in the sense of, I, I understand why people would be upset and I didn't want to take away from any, anyone who actually went through it for the first time. Uh, but I think the confusion was when you read the article, Yes, it was titled wrong, but in the article it said through TRF, which that is a factual statement. That, that's, that's really what happened. We were the first firefighters through tactical response force. And some yeah, people missed that and just saw first combat firefighters, period, which yeah. I know and honor and respect the men who came before me and actually put in that work and were the first and did that already and were deployed None of that was said. It was through TRF. I wouldn't put it on you. <laughs> yeah. I've got something, something I could add with all of that. It could hopefully put it into perspective to all the different levels of uh, either agreeance or objection to all this. It's this. Um, today's day and age. Yeah, we're, we're, not trying to make, we're not trying to make GI firefighters. That's not, that's not the point of this. The point is this, we have cops responding to uh, more and more often things like active shooters, uh, small terrorist acts of, of different sizes, right? Uh, they're being subjected to these things with no immediate uh, life-saving capabilities. Uh, so when uh, General Mattis uh, became Secretary of Defense, he wrote a letter out to all of... Um, the chiefs of staff, and he said, hey, TCCC works. Look at the Rangers' casualty rates and look at other casualty rates um, for different combat scenarios. Uh, having life-saving capabilities at the front in the fight overall, say, I can't remember the, I have the letter printed off somewhere. It's, it's crazy amount. It's like 33% more lives are saved just from having those guys trained. And so looking at the types of responses cops are doing both on the civilian side and the military side, it's a very obvious next step, not just people out there fighting battles, but these, these municipal responses, these different uh, uh, police force responses, they really need that frontline medical capabilities. So the question then is this, who's going to do it? Are we going to have nurses uh, put on bulletproof vests and go through there? Are we going to have cops learn medical training? 
I just don't think that's really that appropriate either. Why were firefighters asked to participate in this training? Beyond being cool, what value does this add to our response capability? If you want to go with that, Dallin, you could go ahead. All right. So it's, um, that's pretty much, uh, what we were just discussing was, um, in some of these types of responses, these active shooter, uh, these dangerous responses for a police force because it's becoming increasingly more common that uh, police are subjected to gunfights and uh, all kinds of dangers. Out there, it's been proven that when they have medical capabilities immediately at their disposal, like the, the second a gunshot or a knife wound is sustained, if they have that immediate response, their su- survivability goes up a ton. Uh, it goes up way more. And I mean, even if, even if the difference was just in a, in a large enough building, if, uh, uh, say a cop got shot and they immediately start to drag him out the building versus, okay, let's do a little bit of, uh, whatever, whatever he needs, right. A tourniquet or some quick clot or some kind of wound packing. His survivability is much higher if he gets that, gets that medical treatment immediately. The second after the gunshot is sustained, uh, survivability is, is a lot more. So the question is, who's going to do it? Who's going to do the medical treatment in that scenario? So we got three options, really. You can have uh, nurses or other medical trainees, uh, or trained professionals, learn police tactics. You can have police learn medical ter- treatment. Or you can have firefighters who already follow a structured chain of command. They, they, they show up on scenes and they run command for all kinds of scenarios. And they're really easy, much more easily integrated because they already have the medical training. They already know how to move around as a team and do team effort. Uh, now all we have to do is get them to start talking like cops and be able to move with them. And it's, it's a much smaller gap to cover is going from fire to uh, police work in that sense. Adam, it sounds like Dallin hit it pretty well there. Do you have anything to add on why firefighters were integrated into something like this? I, I, I personally support it to the fullest. I mean, we're here on base 24-7, 365. Uh, specifically here at this base, the TRF building is about a two-minute drive. So when you come to looking at the golden hour and time and Time is of the essence when it comes to a lot of these medical scenarios. Who better than us, in my opinion, in a sense of we, we're the ones who call for ALS, for transport. We, the ones who set up triage and why not have us on scene in the mix to where we could communicate and really uh, relay the needs, you know, we would be in the scene and I, I support it to the fullest, uh, this whole program, to be honest. It makes sense to me too that firefighters are integrated into something like this. I think it's a great idea and I think it's awesome that Maelstrom is kind of leading the effort. But you guys are fortunate enough to have that security forces training on the base with you. But it's pretty awesome that you guys are leading the effort with it. So, Adam, when we talked on the phone, you mentioned to me you guys had different levels of PPE that you use for responses. Can you explain what those different levels are and what kind of equipment is included? Sure. Uh, to be pretty simple and basic, you know, we get issued helmets, vests, uh, 
and gun holsters. That's pretty much about it. Uh, we would be issued like a repel kit if we were on flight. But for us right now, as firefighters, we just have our line ones, twos, and then threes, which is again, consists of your vest, helmet, and weapon holster. Um, so we don't carry them on our trucks. We're still in the planning phase because this is still fairly new to us all. So what we would do in case of a response is we we have our gear here. We will put it on a support vehicle and then we would go to their building and respond with their second team. Now, this is very important because there's a lot of controversy when it comes to this topic. We are not the first ones going into the building. This this will stem two ways when it comes to controversy because a lot of people say, hey, you're not cops. You know, you're firefighters. You shouldn't even be armed going in. So that's where there's there's some discussion with this whole thing is what type of protection, what type of procedures are we going to be doing as firefighters since we're not cops? The whole thing behind it, and I believe that we have their support, is we should know what to do in a what-if scenario. So, yes, we will be the second team going in, but if they didn't clear a room and someone pops out with a weapon, we don't want to be liabilities in a sense of, hey, we just went through this quick computer course or this CBT to, to join these cops, and we don't know how they operate, how they move, how they speak, how to operate their weapon systems. So this course orientation taught us how to move the way they move, how to speak the way they speak, how to use every weapon that they have just in case, even as a second team, something does happen. We're capable to be, to, to join the team, be an asset instead of being uh, a liability because we don't have weapons and, you know, we're being protected behind them. So again, there's, there's a lot of controversy when it comes to that topic of what do we do? So that's why we, we carry the gear that we have. We have it here with us and we're trying to implement a program to where if something happens, we have a locker set up with them to where we would go over. By the time we get over there, the first team is gone. We'll be responding with the second team and clearing out the building, looking for uh, medical scenarios, to say the least. I appreciate you clarifying those points on you not being the first to go in. That's a pretty important thing for people to hear. Yeah. You mentioned line one, two, three. Can you explain what line one is, what line two is, what line three is as far as equipment? Line one is just your belt, which pretty much is going to holster a, a nine millimeter and, uh, a couple of magazines and a dump pouch. Uh, and then let's see, correct me if I'm wrong too. I know what line three is, but line two is uh vast helmet, everything else. And so it's a, you know, your plate carrier, uh, a helmet, gloves, eye pro, eye pro, ear pro yeah, eye pro gloves. Yeah. And then uh, line three is pretty much just a rucksack with whatever else you're going to need. Depends on the situation. So you're not obviously not going to carry a rucksack into the building, but uh uh, this is a a nuclear base and we have lots of launch facilities that, you know, maybe their approach to it isn't going to be like, hey, let's fly right directly up to the launch facility that was uh, overtaken by bad guys. We're going to land, you know, two miles away 
and sneak in there. It's kind of the the idea with that. So do you guys qualify on weapons? Adam, I talked to you on the phone a little bit before we did this, and you mentioned that you qualified for the training, but they won't let you arm up for the response. Is that right? Pretty much. So so this goes almost every subject we talked about so far uh, goes with this kind of a caveat. None of this is like final policy yet. We're still building what we want this to become. So our line one, two, and three is much different than the the TRF's line one, two, and three. They're they're bringing some move people and shoot bad guys equipment, and we're bringing uh, patches to cover the holes. If that makes sense. And so uh, when it comes to uh, all of this thing, it it none of this is set in stone. We're still we're still building this program. Uh, you know we're getting a lot of attention. And what's happening here is a lot of a lot of interesting people are popping up and saying, "Hey, well, uh, if you guys want to operate this way, like our medical director, for example, uh, I can I can you know I can sign you off on that." And then it's becoming it's building this snowball of momentum. That, you know, our medical director's on board with us getting uh, our advanced EMT certificates. He's on board with us uh, getting light physicals so that we can respond on on helicopters and that's that's been huge that's been a huge thing on our part uh that's gonna substantiate a lot more money to be put into this for our base anyways uh but that's it's all kind of being built still so someone's gonna come down with opposition and we'll have to kind of chop it down a little bit but for the most part it's still kind of in writing it sounds like it's heading in a great direction. You guys are going to go after advanced EMT certifications. Yes, correct. That in, in endorsements, you know, being able to to start IVs, up our medications, which, in a sense, in my opinion, I think every base should be doing at least the medical portion of it of advancing. I know we've made advancements uh, by becoming EMTs, but. I, it's hard for me to put into the into words uh, frustration that I felt that I felt being on a medical scene and waiting for ALS, not being able to do X, Y, and Z, while family members are just looking at you like, you know, because they don't know our uh, what we can our scope of practice. Um, so they might be staring at you like, "Hello, wh- what are you doing?" You know, someone's in trouble, and we're sitting there waiting for ALS because we can't do, you know. Our scope is is small. Yeah, like definitely like, (laughs) uh, I mean, we've had people going to arrhythmias and things with on their hearts do some funny things. And if we would have just had uh, the right equipment, the right, you know, certs, we could have done a lot more than just like, well, here's some oxygen. Uh, But we're trying to chase that down uh, to be much more effective. Yeah, this is a subject that we could cover in length in probably multiple podcast episodes. And in case you guys don't know, Air Force fire protection is actually heading in that direction. There's going to be a day where we're going to be in charge of medical response and the medical group will no longer have responsibility other than the medical director. There's not going to be the paramedics running out of their ambulance. The ambulance will be running out of the fire department, depending on the location. But that's the direction the Air Force is moving. But if you brought up, you don't have the same equipment as cops if you respond to one of these. 
it made me think of what do you carry in in regards to medical equipment? Are you carrying your typical jump bag that you find on an engine or do you guys have a specific bag that you bring in with you if there's an active shooter or a mass casualty incident and you're asked to respond with the cops? Yeah, so basically, uh, as far as our specific equipment that we would carry in, and this is our capability, we've already put in the order, everything's been approved, and we've ordered these. uh, They're pretty much backpacks and little extra parts of our Line 1s, which, uh, reminder, was the belt that holds a 9, some magazines, and a dump pouch. Uh, We've got some, some additional little pouches, and pretty much it's a a single wound uh quick dispense backpack it's pretty cool um imagine this small backpack this kind of like an upside down pez dispenser and uh it dispenses these little these little bags you know about yay big uh and one bag will have anything that you'd need for a a gunshot wound or a knife wound right so it's got packing material it's got gauze it's got a tourniquet each one has its own tourniquet uh, it's, you know, it has a bunch of these things and then it kind of just, you just reach up behind your back and, and pull out a bag, deal with one gunshot wound. It's all set up the same. And if you had to, you could just toss them you know, across the hallway or down the, down the way inside a situation. And then in addition to that, once we get our certs, we're going to have a, a kind of a thigh pouch, if you will, it's this long skinny pouch that zips open. And then you have like this little work table. There'll be IVs and uh, uh, different things like that. Some saline bags in there that you can kind of hunker down, zip open the leg pouch, get an IV going, you know, strap to this guy, and then pass them off to the outside. And he's already got some things going pretty much. Uh, the idea is to bring as much trauma, quick trauma capabilities as we can uh, and we thought that that was the way to go. So our normal grab and go bags, it has oxygen, it has BVMs, it has all this other stuff. Uh, we're leaving all of that. We're, we're just going to try to do blood stopping and, uh, airways. And that's pretty much it. As long as we can keep an airway open for them to go from the inside of a building to the outside, they can have BVMs and oxygen ready. So it sounds much different than what we care on the engine. Yes, it is a lot less down. equipment. Kind of yeah. like stop the bleed kit. Yep. Uh, controlling life threatening hemorrhaging stuff like that. So, well, we'll move on to the last point, gentlemen. So, obviously, not all Air Force fire departments have the luxury of going to a security forces tactical response force orientation course. So, what can departments do right now to implement or to improve their already existing rescue task force program? I'll go ahead and start this and then you could follow up with anything else, uh, Dallin. Uh, we had a, we had this discussion and again, us being in for close to four years, three years. I personally don't know the capability of every base. I know what we have at this base and how it came about. How it came about was, like I mentioned before, we saw we these TRF guys, they wanted to use our building for repelling and we started conversations with them. It's something that we had in mind with working with the cops on creating this program. But to sum that up, what I'm trying to say is as simple as find out who would respond to some of these scenarios on your base or whatever base and show up 
show FaceTime, uh, show some interest, say, hey, this is what we would like to do. Uh, this is the direction that, you know, some other bases are going. How can this come about? And again, we know what we have at this base. And as a younger airman, I'm not sure what's all out there for different bases, but it's finding out as you putting in the work and asking the questions. Hey, sir, who would respond to this scenario? Who can I talk to? Who can I be in touch with? And uh, in my opinion, that's step number one. And going from there, th- then comes the paperwork and the AFIs and, and FPAs and all that good stuff. Uh, but to me, step number one is showing interest and finding out who. Sound advice, man. You got anything on that, Dallin? Yeah, I mean, it's just going to back up what he, what he already said. And that's pretty much figure out what who would respond to these things, right? So here at this base, we've got the nuke, we've got... Um, active shooter and we've got uh, search and rescue type capabilities that our RTRF team is uh, mainly doing. And so in those events, we know who would normally go. That's how we got involved with them and say, Hey, we can augment your, your guys' capabilities quite well with this medical stuff. Now at your base, if you don't have TRF, you don't have, you know, uh, special tactics at all. You don't have any of this, figure out who would respond in a in an active shooter situation, maybe it's it's your your municipal police force outside the base. Maybe they would come on base and they have a SWAT capability. I mean, I don't know. There's going to be a million different ways to um, kind of deal with one of these situations. I guarantee, if one of these happened, some of the weird ones would pop up out of the woodworks. But have a talk with the chief. Have a talk with the training manager and say, "Hey, have we thought about this?" If an active shooter shows up at the DFAC right now, uh, who's going to show up? Who's going to be there? How can we get involved with that? And then get those groups together and start building a plan. Uh, you might have some opposition. Maybe the cops don't want fire in there, or maybe the fire doesn't want to get involved. But honestly, if you just kind of lay it out like, uh, like, hey, this is this is the way things are happening in the future. You're having these... Uh, small terrorist acts, disgruntled people do these things for no no reason, and uh, they happen at random times. That, those are the kinds of questions that we need to answer. Is like, uh, where is the possibility? Who's going to be there? How do we get involved in that? Then get those people in a room and hash it out. Yeah, that's great advice as well. This is a new thing, and with new things come a lot of questions. Yeah. So getting to the bottom of it is the first step for sure. Some cops may not know about this either. There's bases out there where cops probably don't know that fire departments integrating with the cops for an active shooter response. And so it's building those relationships with the cops and talking amongst your management, your leadership in the department and figuring out what to do. So, well, I appreciate each of you sharing your experience about the course. I have no doubt that this is going to help people across the Air Force Enterprise, implement their rescue task force programs. Do either of you have any final thoughts before we wrap it up? I would. I'd like to just say that, in my opinion, this is a win-win scenario. I think it'll benefit both the cops and fire. It shows unity, shows integration. Uh, We get to understand them better. They get to understand us better. Um, It it even motivates some of us to get in better shape, to be better prepared, which will help us on the fire ground. Uh, it helps us hone in our medical skills, which will help us on the fire ground as well. And for the base populace. So in my opinion, 
this is a win on either side. Um, and like I said before, I fully support it. Um, if anyone ever needs any help or questions, whatever, I believe we're here to kind of push this forward and see where it goes from here. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it would be nice to uh, have some kind of an open contact uh, for any of the potential listeners interested in starting this or helping us grow what we've got. Uh, we are definitely open to input because, like I said, we don't have hard SOPs. We don't have exact things yet. Uh, maybe if somebody else knows how municipal agencies are doing this, has any recommendations like that, we are definitely open to suggestions. And we would also like to help others uh, do this because it's kind of the way it's 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 going to end up. Uh, it's going to be end up be more integrated services. Uh, the lines are going to get blurred between cops and medical and fire. Uh, it's the, it's the way of the future. Yeah. Well, if any of our listeners want to get in contact with Dallin or Adam, they can probably each be found on the global Dallin Wilson, senior airman and Adam Van Lang, senior airman Maelstrom. What's the unit up there? 341st CES. 341st CES. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more content just like this regularly posted to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast. That's facebook.com forward slash the Fire D-A-W-G Podcast. If you've liked what you've heard so far and you want to hear more, please like, subscribe, share with your friends and coworkers, and don't forget to rate this episode wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is host Matt Wilson with guests Dallin Wilson and Adam Van Lang. Until next time, stay safe.